Daniel 8. I will be covering the entire chapter, um, but for the sake of this message, we will not read the entire chapter at the beginning. Um, But to give honor to the word of the Lord and to give honor to our God, uh, those who are able to stand will will stand for the initial reading. Chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 1 through 14 of Daniel 8. This is God's holy and infallible word. In the eighth year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him. In his mighty wrath, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would help us to understand this portion of prophecy. Help us to realize that you are the God who is mighty and foretells of great and wonderful mysteries. You, O Father, are the revealer of mysteries. And we pray that you would help us to understand and to believe and to rejoice in you and your works throughout history. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. You might be surprised if I tell you you can't trust everything you read online. And you cannot trust everything you read on sites that talk about what the Bible teaches, especially concerning the issue of dating authorship. Now, um, the first I heard of this was with Isaiah. Um, this wasn't taught in seminary. Our seminary uh, that I went to believes that there was one author of Isaiah named Isaiah. Uh, but some secular scholars would say there were actually two authors of Isaiah. Because how could Isaiah foretell the things that he foretold hundreds of years before they happened? So because of that, this, um, this theory of unbelief or this worldview of unbelief, it couldn't possibly be that Isaiah could tell the future. So they have to divide up Isaiah saying that there's two different authors. Well, the same thing happens with Daniel. There are some who believe, uh, because of their unbelief, that God could foretell the future hundreds of years in advance, that this book was written um, in around 200 B.C., it couldn't have possibly been written in the time it was because it talks about things that were happened hundreds of years later. And I believe that's the reason why um, they, are, they went that way. So the traditional biblical understanding of the dating would say mid-6th century. Mid-6th century. But the events that are mentioned here, especially concerning what we we saw about a ram with a large horn that was making a great dominance, which I'll, I'll just give you the heads up of who it is at first, is really Alexander the Great, wasn't born until the year 356 B.C. So from mid-century, of mid-6th century to 356 B.C., we're told of a man's coming and rule and his kingdoms spread in a rapid fashion over about 180 years before it happened. Rome, which is also foretold in this book, didn't arise as an empire until 31 BC. Now, we should delight in this book. The reason we should delight in this book is because of something that we read earlier in chapter 1, that our Lord is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the Lord of kings, and he is, as Nebuchadnezzar testified, the revealer of mysteries. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit and even angels through visions could teach Daniel of things that happen hundreds of years later. Because God is the God who is the revealer of mysteries, isn't he? And we'll look a little bit at that in the connection to Christ toward the end of the message. Chapter 7, give it a little bit of review. 
chapter 7 uh, is a, gives visions of four beasts. The four beasts correspond to the four parts of the great statue which Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, which represents four of the world's great empires. And I'm not going to review the statue too much except for the last part. But the first beast was a winged lion, and that represented the Babylonian Empire. The bear, verse 5, was the vast empire of the Medes and Persians. The four-headed winged leopard, verse 6, represented the kingdom of Greece. And the dreadful, terrifying beast with teeth of iron and claws of bronze with the ten horns was Rome. Rome as this great beast of teeth of iron, is also parallel to the, the statue's feet of iron and clay mentioned by the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. The good news of the gospel is that a stone cut without hands comes from down from heaven, and the reason it was cut without hands was because it was given by God, by special gift of God, made by God, or coming from God, the stone built without or cut without hands comes down from heaven, hits the statue at the feet of iron and clay, demolishes the entire statue. So it's during the rule of Rome, Christ comes on the scene. And it says of, of this, this, this stone built without hands that smashes the statue, it became a great mountain that filled the entire earth. And that's what Christianity has done. It is had a spread to every continent, every part of the world. Of course, we know that the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in because there's still nations, tribes, and tongues that need to come into um, the kingdom. We're told over and over again throughout this book, the kingdom that will come will last forever. His kingdom will come and it will last forever. It will never again be destroyed. It will never be destroyed. Now, um, getting over to these visions of the ram and the goat, we'll first look at the visions. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of an overview reading of the visions of the ram and the goat, and then we'll look at the angelic interpretation of the visions. So let's look at this first main point the visions of the ram and the goat, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the, king, uh, um, Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the ones which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westwards, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn. Now, conspicuous means something that's easily visible or easy to take notice of. So a, a conspicuous horn between his eyes. 
He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. He struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Notice one thing that's common. Okay, again, the ram and the goat both represent kingdoms. I would say it's better to understand it as empires. But both were arrogant. Both magnified themselves, and which is something you would expect from, from pagan nations, pagan kingdoms. And we might say from the onset, before we look at to the identity of who these two kingdoms were, these kingdoms being raised up and to be allowed to have power and authority were by God's sovereign hand. He is the one who allowed them and raised them up. And these were used even as a foundation for the coming of Christ. And we'll look at that in a little bit. In other words, God had a sovereign purpose in allowing these kingdoms to rise. Remember, earlier in Daniel's vision, remember when he, oh, let me correct myself. Earlier when Daniel needs to give the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He doesn't know the interpretation, so what does he do? He gathers his friends, and he tells them all to pray. And he asks them to pray that God would reveal to them the interpretation, because if they didn't reveal the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar, they all would have died. They would have all been put to death, along with all the other wise men in Babylon. So then Daniel goes to sleep that night, and then God gives them the answer, the vision, the interpretation of the vision that the king had. And... Thankfully, uh, Daniel was honored, and the king was pleased, and even the king um, magnified the Lord after that. But what's different in today's text, and also earlier in chapter 7, is that Daniel doesn't have to pray for an understanding of a vision, because in chapter 7 and chapter 8, while he's having this vision, there's a there mention of bystanders. There's a man, or what we think was a man at first, standing beside Daniel. So what does Daniel do? He goes and asks, hey, can you tell me what this means? From today's text, we'll find out that the actual people standing by, you could say the bystanders, uh, in these dreams were actually angels. And the mention of Gabriel especially gives us the clue that these are angels who give Daniel the interpretation. So here's Daniel asking for the interpretation and the, given the answer. Uh, verses 15 and following. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai. And he came out and said, Gabriel, Give this man, give this man, Daniel, give this man an understanding of the vision. 
So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. That leads us to the second point of this message. The angelic interpretation of the visions. And much of what we're going to read next will be the, the, the angelic interpretation with some going back to what was mentioned before. So let's look at the ram defeated by the goat. Verse 20 and 21. This is the words of the angel. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, or you could say the first king of Greece as a great empire, at least. Now, going back to Persia and the, the Medes, the reason why we have a ram with two horns is because this ram, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, had one horn larger than the other. Of course, the larger horn would be the Persian Empire. Because by the time that Greece fights against the Medo-Persian Empire, it's no longer called the Medo-Persian Empire, it's merely called the Persian Empire. Okay? So go back to verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. This is Alexander the Great. Remember, he, this goat comes up to the ram. It, it hits the ram. It breaks both horns, and then it jumps on top of him, tramples him down, and no one is able to rescue the ram. That's what the goat did to the ram. Um, one of the most decisive battles that happened, uh, it was at Gargamela. It was, versus, um, it was the Greeks versus the Persians. It happened that the Greeks were numbered, outnumbered, two to, about two to one. But because of the great genius of the, of the military uh, leadership of Alexander the Great, the Greeks only lost a few hundred men, while the Persians lost thousands during that one decisive battle. The, uh, King Darius, I think it's King Darius III, he fled, and then later on, um, Alexander continued in a very rapid fashion to overtake all of the Persian Empire. Now, it mentions him being like a goat that's moving so fast, he's like floating. It says the goat is so rapid that it's not even touching the ground. 
Alexander, when he became king of the Greek Empire, was only 20 years old. By the age of 30, he ruled over an empire, one of the greatest empires of all of history, in 10 years. And his empire extended all the way from Greece to Pakistan. I would say that was a very rapid moving ram. But it says that at the height of his conquest, at the height of his greatness, that big horn was basically done away with. It was broken. That is, in verse 22, it says, the horn was broken, and then four horns arose in its place to represent four kingdoms which arise from his nation, although not with his power. It's not a coincidence that when Alexander the Great died, that his kingdom got divided in four. Now, not all of the four kingdoms are really given much attention in today's text. But there is one of notable mention, and it's, uh, it's in verses 9 and following. And so we're backtracking a little bit. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land there is the promised land of Israel. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of heaven and the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's God himself, uh, the host of heaven. It removed the regular sacrifice from him. What's that? That's from the temple. And the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings when the holy place will be properly restored. Now, think about this. This text is telling us that there will be a time where the sacrifices will no longer be allowed. No regular sacrifices will be allowed. There will be a transgression which causes horror. Now, what would, what would cause you horror if you were a Jew? Maybe if someone took a pig and sacrificed swine on the altar in the holy temple. Now listen to this. This, is, this, is a, this comes from Wikipedia concerning the rule of the Seleucid Empire. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes ordered an altar to Zeus to be erected in the temple, that is the temple of Jerusalem, he also, according to Josephus, compelled Jews to dissolve the laws of the country. Remember, it said that the laws of the land would be thrown down. It will fling the truth to the ground, it said earlier. So they compelled them 
to get rid of the laws, to dissolve the laws of the country. They were to keep their infants uncircumcised. I read elsewhere that they could even have the death penalty if they circumcised their infants, their male boys. They were to sacrifice swine's flesh upon the altar. And of course, what do you think happened? You think the Jews opposed that? Yes, they did. And a lot of them were put to death because they refused to sacrifice swine's flesh on the altar. Many were put to death. But later on, what we have was the Maccabean Revolt, which against the Seleucid Empire, the Second Temple was rededicated, which leads us to that Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Now, you remember when it says, in, it says there in verse 14, the holy place will be properly restored. That's what happened after the revolt of the Maccabeans. Now, you might ask yourself, why did God allow all this catastrophe? Why did he allow these kingdoms to rule? Why did he allow a great Medo-Persian empire to then be taken over by the great Greek empire? Well, there's reasons. In history, we were given what we call the Septuagint. That's the Hebrew translation, I mean, sorry, that's the, that's the Hebrew Bible translated into the Greek. And then we were given later a Greek New Testament, which because of the spread of the Roman Empire, you had a great spread of both the Old Testament and later on the New Testament scriptures because of a common language given throughout most of the known world at this time. So God used that. God used the establishment of a Greek empire to lead on to later the Roman Empire, which also included what we call the Pax Romana, so the Roman peace, which then was greatly used by God for the spread of the gospel in the first few centuries. Now I ask you, how is it possible that God could foretell the future hundreds of years, and in some cases, thousands of years before it happens. Because he's the revealer of mysteries. Our God is the one who revealed thousands of years ago that Jesus would come as the seed of the woman to undo the work of the seed of the serpent. Hundreds of years, approximately, I think it's, some have said about seven, at least 700 years or more, before his birth, Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. Old Testament prophecy tells us that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend, and that for 30 silver. We're told in Scripture that he would be mocked, ridiculed, he'd be forsaken. Why? For our transgressions, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says that his grave was assigned to the wicked, yet he was with a rich man buried after his death. But he had done no violence. That he, Jesus, the Messiah who would come, was sinless and undefiled. There was no deceit in his mouth. So I have to ask you this. 
If God can't foretell the coming of kingdoms and rulers, the coming of an empire to then be broken up and then divided into four as the Greek empire, how can he not also foretell us of the holy Messiah? He can, can he? Because he is the revealer of mysteries. And today's text tells us that God has used history to bring about the coming of our Messiah, our holy Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. We thank you for our, uh, this, your holy word. We thank you for the magnificent way in which you, our God, that you have revealed mysteries, that you have revealed these things unto us, even the coming of great kingdoms and the fall of great kingdoms, and even the coming of that stone cut without hands, even Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone that came and smashed that great statue, even representing the, the old empires of the world. And we thank you that the kingdom of our Christ shall stand forever, and it shall never, ever be done away with. We thank you for our blessed Lord Jesus, that you even foretold his coming and his holy sacrifice for the sake of sinners such as us. Bless now, we pray, this your word unto us. Help us to receive it and to believe it. And we pray that you would help us to embrace the holy Messiah that you have given us, even Jesus our Lord. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For our closing hymn, Let's stand and sing 562. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Stand and sing 562.